This is Guns and Butter. Higher political debate in the U.S. really revolves around derivatives, but the taboo on this in the ruling class is so severe that no one dares to talk about them. They talk about toxic assets or these complex instruments. The great reticence they have is that if it's widely understood that the depression is a derivatives depression, not caused by little people trying to buy subprime mortgages so they can get some slum property and a, and a roof over their heads, but caused by bankers, almost exclusively by bankers, creating these derivatives and jacking that up to 1.5 quadrillion. Once it's clear that derivatives have caused the depression, it's also clear who's responsible. It is the finance oligarchy itself. In other words, the, the financier ruling class, the bankers, Wall Street, the money center, financial institutions, and, and they'll be held responsible. So there's a tremendous taboo on saying the word derivative, but that's what's at the heart of the matter. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama's Banking Panic. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Against Oligarchy, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. A paperback second edition of Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, Your Guide Through the Greatest Financial Crisis in Human History, is due out by Progressive Press. Today we define the crisis, discuss the Federal Reserve, what steps ought to be taken, the Troubled Asset Recovery Program, or TARP, foreclosures, the administration's stimulus package, the bad bank concept under Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, Larry Summers, and Paul Volcker, the upcoming budget, the Fiscal Responsibility Summit, and what lies ahead under present policies. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. We're in an economic crisis. How would you define this crisis? Um, Let's begin with the Federal Reserve. What role does it play? Well, the Federal Reserve role has been uh, overwhelmingly negative, and uh, by failing to regulate the system, they're actually striking out for the third time. They struck out in 1929 with the stock market crash. They struck out even more in 1932-33 with the banking panic, which they failed to stop. But then we have now the world derivatives panic, which is what's going on right now. It is a world economic and financial depression of unimaginable, incalculable proportions. It is a bottomless pit. And the principal factor that has created this is the question of the derivatives, the 1.5 quadrillion or more uh, of derivatives. We just had an estimate this week of 1.8 quadrillion of derivatives. That is to say 1.8 thousand trillion uh, dollars of uh, derivatives, a colossal sum, obviously something that, that cannot be paid off. But let me just take a step back from from the Federal Reserve. Uh, Federal Reserve, of course, is a creature of Wall Street that doesn't have any real independent existence. The thing that I think that people have to understand first is that we're in this collapsing bubble. You have to imagine that we're on the inside of a sphere, and the sphere is collapsing. So you can think of it as negative curvature. It's something different than what we've been used to in our lives 
up to now, except for people who have some recollection of, of the 1930s. Uh, think of, of yourself as walking around on the surface of a pseudosphere, right? Normally, the three angles of a triangle make up 180 degrees. Uh, on the inside of a sphere or a pseudosphere, it doesn't work. So none of the usual nostrums, none of the usual ways of thinking are going to work. And it's, I think, time above all now, we're, we're approaching Ash Wednesday here in uh, 2009. It's time to turn away from the Bacchanalian orgy of the derivatives, right? The Mardi Gras of the derivatives and, and of, of the bubble economy, the casino economy, the speculative excesses that have been going on really for decades. And think about measuring things in different ways because we're on this collapsing bubble. Forget about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Forget about any kind of paper value, any kind of exchange value, any kind of market value. Think about industrial production. Think about use values. Don't worry about the price of the NASDAQ. Worry about freight car loadings. Worry about truck loadings. Worry about the level of unemployment. Uh, when it comes to homes and foreclosures, don't worry about the price of homes. That's the least of your worries. Worry about the number of foreclosures and, above all, the number of people who are now homeless. Worry about things like the uh, indexes of malnutrition, uh, of starvation, of infant mortality. Uh, up to now, we've had about 40,000 people dying every day in the third world because of underdevelopment. I'm sure that that number has uh, radically increased, maybe doubled, but I, I don't know. So uh, it, it takes a different way of thinking. Don't worry about paper. Don't worry about the price of paper. Worry about people, survival. Worry about production. And I think this is the, the key criteria. Now, the specific situation we have is in the second and third weeks of February, we've had another wave of financial panic. Uh, and this is, quite frankly, associated with Obama's first press conference. And it's um, associated with the debacle of uh, the Geithner uh, Tim Geithner, Tiny Tim now, Secretary of the Treasury, Kissinger Associates, International Monetary Fund, New York Federal Reserve Branch, uh, and his uh, abortive press conference um, of um, Tuesday, the uh, 10th or, or 11th of, uh, of February, which then led to the beginning of the current phase of panic. Let me just add, uh, when I come at this, I'm not a neocon, uh, I'm not uh, a right-winger in any sense, I'm with, uh, you know, Hamilton and Friedrich List and Kerry and Lincoln and the populist and the Franklin D. Roosevelt New Deal and the Kennedy approach to economics. Uh, you're dealing now with a situation where you've got the Republicans, and including Ron Paul, sounding like Andrew Mellon. That was the secretary of the Treasury back in the 1920s who said, well, the way to get out of a depression is just let it rip, right? Liquidate stocks, liquidate bonds, liquidate labor, liquidate real estate doesn't matter, of course, to somebody like Andrew Mellon how many people get killed in the process or how many generations are destroyed. Remember also that Obama in all this is not Franklin D. Roosevelt in any form. He's the anti-Franklin D. Roosevelt. He's the anti-New Deal. He's really much more like Herbert Hoover. And, and the approach that I have to this is to try to say, well, where is the New Deal? What we need most urgently is a, um, a, a force that would represent the New Deal. Now, there are some drifting individuals here and there, right? Marcy Captor of Ohio, I think, has some idea of the New Deal. Uh, Congressman DeFazio of Oregon, they've proposed useful things. But when you get to the, to the New Deal of Harry Hopkins and Jesse Jones and uh, Harold Dickies and Henry Wallace and, and Roosevelt himself, nobody represents this these days. And I think that's the big uh, urgency. So 
what we've had now is the Geithner debacle. Uh, we've had just this past Friday, uh, the stock of Citibank uh, lost about one third of its value in one day, uh, and then it was pumped back up by by various kinds of mechanisms that they have to to drug the markets. Same thing with Bank of America, and this is based on the uh, immediate perspective that banks are going to be nationalized. Now, um, I think these banks should not be nationalized. They should simply be seized. They're bankrupt, and indeed, it's illegal to let them do what they're doing. Under the usual regulations of the Fed, the controller of the currency, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, Bank of America, uh, Wells Fargo, and several others are already to be seized. They should be wound up. They should be put through Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and they should cease to operate because I think they're hopelessly bankrupt. For a lot of them, Chapter 11 would turn into Chapter 7. And uh, that, I think, is really the only legal thing you can do. And in the course of doing that, you're going to have to triage their debt instruments. And the main thing that you've got to do is to simply wipe out these derivatives. As long as you have 1.5 quadrillion or more of derivatives weighing down on the world economy, there can be no recovery. The only thing to do with them is to wipe them out, get rid of them with the stroke of a pen, shred them, delete them, burn them, make them into wallpaper. Uh, you get the idea. Well, uh, while we're on the subject of derivatives, you've explained derivatives as paper based on paper. Right. What constitutes a derivative? They come in all lots of forms, don't well, they? Well, remember, uh, they were illegal from 1936 uh, until 1982, derivatives were illegal. That is, any kind of instrument that had an option built into it was a very dubious legality. There had been attempts to corner the market in foodstuffs in the mid-1930s using options on uh, agricultural markets, commodity markets. And the Roosevelt administration said, fine, we're going we're gonna to outlaw this. So they regulated that market. Reagan then made them legal. And uh, Wendy Graham, the, the wife of this ogre Phil Graham, the main economic advisor to McCain, um, gave them a safe haven in the last days of the Bush the Elder administration uh, in, in 1980 and 1981, as, as Bush the Elder was, was on his way out. Uh, and then there was a fight about this under Clinton, with Brooks Lee Bourne saying that the derivatives ought to be illegal. And people like Bob Rubin of Citibank, Alan Greenspan above all, and Larry Summers, people that are in the administration today, saying, no, we need these wonderful derivatives because they're a method of innovation and so forth. Well, the derivatives represent the classic form of fictitious capital. In other words, the creation of capitalist property titles outside of the realm of production. They are cancerous, speculative, fictitious, bloated, and they've got to be gotten rid of. Now, the, the funny thing is, that the entire political debate in the U.S. really revolves around derivatives. But the taboo on this in the ruling class is so severe that no one dares to talk about them. They talk about toxic assets or these complex instruments. The, the great reticence they have is that if it's widely understood that the depression is a derivatives depression, not caused by little people trying to buy subprime mortgages so they can get some slum property and a, and a roof over their heads, but caused by bankers, almost exclusively by bankers, creating these derivatives and, and jacking that up to 1.5 quadrillion. The, the official figure, of course, is only 600 trillion. But my figure is between twice and, and three times that, as I've, as I've said. 
Once it's clear that derivatives have caused the depression, it's also clear who's responsible. It is the finance oligarchy itself. In other words, the, the financier ruling class, the bankers, Wall Street, the money center, financial institutions, and, and they'll be held responsible. So there's a tremendous taboo on saying the word derivative, but that's what's at the heart of the matter. Derivatives include credit default swaps. Those are sometimes talked about. Collateralized debt obligations. There was a series in the Washington Post that these two helped to bring down the AIG insurance company. You've also got structured investment vehicles. Big flurry of talk about that in the, in the fall of 2008, uh, of 2007, excuse me. You've also got mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, the results of securitization. Uh, Robert Samuelson, the, the Newsweek and Washington Post economy uh, columnist, wants to save securitization. Securitization is exactly what must be forbidden. In other words, the pyramiding of castles of paper based on paper based on paper into the ionosphere, indeed into interplanetary space, uh, with the idea that as long as the leverage at the top is positive, you're getting tremendous money concentrated at the apex of the pyramid. But as soon as anything goes wrong at the base, even a little thing like subprime mortgages, the panic sets in and the leverage of the entire edifice begins to go into reverse, meaning that you're not pyramiding profits, you're pyramiding uh, losses. Now, the original TARP, the original $800 billion bailout of September, October of last year, proposed by Bush and Paulson of Goldman Sachs, but also supported by Obama, without Obama couldn't have gotten through, was supposed to start buying up these toxic derivatives, again, that's what they are, but you notice that a couple of weeks into the TARP, Paulson said, well, I can't do this. I've got to start putting money into the banks. The problem that they face, and we've run up against this now uh, two or three times, is that you can't deal with 1.5 quadrillion of derivatives with any amount of money that you could mention in public that would be politically uh, feasible. And that's exactly what's happened to, uh, to Geithner. Geithner came in and he said, well, now I'm going to give this my uh, shot. He, of course, was part of the original Paulson-Bernanke uh, clique that designed the TARP, but now he said, I'm going to propose a bad bank or aggregator bank that the U.S. federal government is going to buy up the toxic derivatives and put them in a kind of a toxic waste receptacle uh, and, and deal with the whole situation that way. On Tuesday, the 10th of February, he was scheduled to come out and, uh, and tell his plan, and he punted. And he said, well, this is very complex and very difficult, and we want to get it right, and give us time, and we'll get it right. And the market went down 400 points, and the banks in particular were very, very hard hit. And that has really continued now uh, through Tuesday, the uh, 17th of February, to Friday, the 20th, which was the big day when you had a, an incipient banking panic in the afternoon, again, with both Citibank and Bank of America down 35% at their lows of the day, although they did, they did bounce back. Uh, the point is, and we have this in the, uh, the Washington Post, I, I recommend the Washington Post because it's, a, uh, it's the house organ of the Federal Reserve System. They tell you some things in there that you're not likely to find anywhere else. The, the background on Geithner's abortive press conference was that he recognized that the government would have to put trillions of dollars of taxpayer money at risk and that the sum would be so huge that it would anger members of Congress. So we're now hanging here. The problem is 1.5 quadrillion. Now, not all of that is in the U.S. Let's say the U.S. has uh, one quadrillion of derivatives. A lot of it's in Chase Manhattan, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase alone, but the big money center banks tend to have these things. If you, if you seized 
the top 10 banks and put them through Chapter 11 and wiped out the derivatives, you would have wiped out about 90% of the derivatives, I think, in the whole U.S. system. Although, the insurance companies have also been battered, right? Met- Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, the Hartford, the Prudential, Connecticut General, and so forth, their stocks have been hit very, very hard, down 10 20% uh, just this past week, also based on the fact that they hold either derivatives or the preferred shares of banks that hold derivatives. So the, the point being, you've got to wipe out these, these derivatives, and the, the paralysis that you see in the government from Paulson to Geithner is what do you do with this? Now, Geithner is supposed to come forward this coming week, that is to say the, uh, the last week of February, and he's supposed to talk about this aggregator bank or bad bank, and I'd be interested to see what he does because this is impossible. It's Scylla and Charybdis. There's no way in between uh, between telling people, you know, we're going to need five, ten, twenty trillion dollars of your money, which is impossible, and having the derivatives uh, continue in their in their downward course. Well, that's is, where we are right now. Well, uh, Webster is Geithner uh, proposing that the U.S. government become the bad bank. Sure, he wants he wants money from the uh, U.S. Treasury, not even from the Fed. The Fed can lend, but the Treasury is supposed to now step up to the plate. Uh, he has talked about getting private venture capital involved, but that that solves nothing because private venture capital, these guys like J.C. Flowers, right, the bottom fishers, they come in when they're subsidized to come in. So getting the private sector in is just a fig leaf that you have to pay for. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama's Banking Panic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, Let's take a couple of steps back. People are familiar now with this uh, this notion of injecting liquidity, right? We've had the Federal Reserve inject about $8 trillion worth of liquidity. A lot of it is loans, right? The term auction facility, the primary dealer lending facility, the AIG lending facility, the money market mutual fund uh, emergency lending facility, and on and on and on. They inject liquidity. Here's the problem with this. They say they want to start lending again. They want to have Wall Street serve Main Street by making sufficient credit available so that uh, investment and business can, can go on. The problem is that those money center banks don't do that. They're not into that. They haven't done that for years. J.P. Morgan Chase is a derivatives monster. They officially have $100 trillion of derivatives. Now, in reality, it's three or four times that, but officially they admit to $100 trillion. Now, the gross national product of the U.S. is what, $15 trillion. You can see the problem, right? They've got, they've got six or seven more times more in derivatives than the whole U.S. economy is worth, and that's the typical problem of derivatives. Here, here is a, a metaphor, since a lot of people are, are confused by economics. Um, let's talk about something everybody knows. That is Count Dracula, and I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged to talk about this because of the the uh, atmosphere of Obama's first press conference on uh, on the 9th of February, I guess that Monday, that was called Fright Night or Shock Theater by a number of uh, unfavorable commentators. But you're in an area where Obama is trying to talk about disaster, catastrophe, crisis, that it's going to be devastating. And indeed, it's true. But the remedies that he's coming up with are absolutely uh, useless uh, or uh, detrimental. Imagine you're walking down the street one night, and you come across Count Dracula, who has assaulted a victim, and he's got his fangs in the neck of the victim, and he's draining the blood of the victim. 
Now, let's suppose that you come equipped with a, uh, uh, an, an emergency ambulance that you've got, and you've got the ability to administer a blood transfusion. The method that's being used now is to say, well, let's leave Count Dracula with his fangs in the victim, and let's get the transfusion into Count Dracula's arm, and we'll saturate Count Dracula with blood to the point where the blood flow will reverse. In other words, it won't be blood coming out of the victim into Count Dracula's fangs, but we're going to have the blood go out of Count Dracula's fangs and back into the victim. In other words, we'll make Count Dracula a vehicle for the liquidity injection or the blood injection that we've got to do to the victim. Now, this wouldn't make much sense, would it? Or suppose you gave Count Dracula the, uh, the transfusion, you pulled him off the victim, and you said, now, Count Dracula, go to the blood bank and give blood, and, uh, and we'll, we'll deal with the, uh, the victim that way. This is absolutely crazy. The only thing to do with Count Dracula is pull him off the victim, put a stake through his heart, right? turn him into dust or whatever the, the movies have him uh, you know, doing these days, and then you've got to administer the transfusion to the victim. And this simply means that if you want lending, go ahead and lend. The federal government is its own bank. You've got the Federal Reserve. You can force them to do things. You can pass a law any day of the week saying, Federal Reserve, issue $1 trillion of credit at 0% for production only. That means from Detroit to Silicon Valley to Southern Farmers to Biotech to Pharma to, um, you know, you name it, any kind of useful production, any kind of real physical tangible wealth, any kind of infrastructure, any kind of mining any kind of energy production, infrastructure building, obviously a very big role in this thing, you can start lending anytime you want to. The approach followed so far is to give money to the private sector and hope that they will lend. And, of course, they don't lend because they hoard it because of the panic, right? We're in this panic, so there's no reason for anybody to make these loans. So you've got to administer the transfusion directly. The federal government can do this. There's no reason uh, why not. Issue $1 trillion, 0%. The only qualification is you've got to be doing something socially necessary like education or medical care or, better yet, something directly productive like those industrial, agricultural, mining, infrastructure, and related things that I said. The other side, though, is you've also got to apply a defibrillator. Maybe the victim's heart has stopped beating. Now, it's not enough to offer lending. You've also got to create the demand to borrow money. And the way you do that is to simply say, let's look at the United States economy right now and ask what are the large, big, spectacular, visible changes we could make, modernization and so forth, that would improve the quality of labor, the productivity of labor, and give the United States a chance to restart economic activity advantageously compared to the rest of the world. I'll just give you a couple of things. You ought to build a magnetic levitation railroad, transcontinental, right, San Francisco to New York and Boston, stop in Chicago, stop in Kansas City, and then have ramifications of that, right? You want to have a northern route, you want to have a southern route, probably three transcontinental railroads with magnetic levitation uh, rail, so you could basically get across the continent in three or four hours from city center to city center. You want to do something to start the permanent uh, colonization and exploration of the moon, Mars, and nearby objects in the, in the solar system. NASA right now has come forward with a Mars Explorer, the Mars Science Laboratory. It's the most elaborate one that's been done so far. Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Pasadena. It's a beautiful thing. $2.2 billion, and there are people who say, we can't afford that. We just gave $700 billion, which has gone like a puff of smoke 
into the derivatives black hole of these banks, into the body of Count Dracula, if you will. But they're telling us that we can't, we can't scrape together $2.2 billion for Mars. Then we have uh, what I call Metro Rail, because that's what we call it here in Washington, D.C., right? The BART. In other words, every city ought to have a comprehensive, modern, urban mass transit system. Right? You go to places like, uh, what, Houston or Dallas or, uh, you know, uh, Colorado, these places. They don't have anything. Some of these places have buses if they're lucky. Um, then there's the other case, New York City. If you've ever been out to Brooklyn lately, you'll see that the subway built 110 years ago in many cases is now getting pretty old, and it needs to be uh, rebuilt. So you've got a huge amount of stuff to do, plus your water systems, your sewage systems, your freshwater systems, and so forth. You've then got to think about um, energy. I mean, I have to say, I, I think nuclear energy is the only conceivable method with this. I realize a lot of leftists get very upset with this because this has become a badge of belonging as a leftist lately, but remember, uh, this actually, it came out of the New Deal, right? Without, without Enrico Fermi and the, uh, and the atomic pile there at Stag Field, there would be no nuclear energy, and it, it turned into atoms for peace under Eisenhower. So if you have a hundred uh, rather obsolete, old-fashioned nuclear reactors approaching the end of their life, why not make a commitment to a hundred new ones, high-temperature reactors, pebble bed, fourth generation, uh, these things have been much, much refined, and there's all sorts of stuff that can be done with it. How about then something equally spectacular? Uh, if you want to go to the Orient now, it takes you, you know, from here, it takes you about 24 hours to get, you know, from uh, New York to uh, to Tokyo or, or Beijing. There's a proposal for a scramjet, the Orient Express, in other words, a generation beyond the Concorde, a generation beyond the supersonic transport that the United States uh, never built. And then... Think about things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, but now applied uh, out in the world. I mean, think of um, the Nile-Congo system, right? merging them together. Put some canals in Central Africa, merge the Nile and the Congo into one uh, system for canals and irrigation and uh, flood control, malaria control, and so forth. Think about building a Dakar to Djibouti magnetic levitation railway, a Cape to Cairo magnetic levitation railway. Same thing for the Mekong system, same thing for the Ganges Brahmaputra in India and Bangladesh, and, and so on down the line. In other words, there are many, many great projects that are waiting to be built, which would be extremely advantageous and which would generate jobs and essentially the modernization of the planet, raising the standard of living of humanity and uh, improving the human condition in, in every possible way. You have to believe in uh, in progress, and I, I believe that that progress is is always available, even though it's it's sometimes not uh, it's not chosen. But that's a matter of politics. So, if you do those things, you would very very quickly begin to get to a uh, a recovery. So, let me just sum it up. Essentially, the recovery depends on four things. You've got to wipe out derivatives. You've got to outlaw adjustable rate mortgages and uh, hedge funds. You've got to re-regulate securities markets with uh, no, no naked short selling, things like this. You've got to re-regulate commodities markets. You've got to have position limits. You can't let speculators run the show. Hedgers have to have a privileged position against speculators. And you need 100% uh, margin. If you want to buy uh, gasoline contracts for the future, you should put up 100% of the price in cash. Otherwise, you're manipulating the market. Go back to Glass-Steagall. Right? Go back to the rigid separation of commercial banking from uh, investment banking and, and stock jobbing and things like this. It means that J.P. Morgan Chase is impossible, right? Those don't belong together under the same roof. Then you, you essentially seize the Fed, 
issue a trillion dollars of zero percent credit, make sure it all goes into production. At the same time, you uh, invite the states and the other uh, groups, right, regional consortia, to come forward and bid for contracts on the things that I've said, the transcontinental maglev, the energy production, and, and so forth. Uh, with that, you'll get a recovery. In the meantime, you've also got to have something like federal emergency relief, some of the stuff that Harry Hopkins did in 1933 and 1934, because you've got a lot of people who are homeless. I think you probably have people now that are starving. The uh, food stamp budget is under tremendous strain. The unemployment insurance system is under tremendous strain, so you've got to do things about that. Some of that stuff has been done in the so-called stimulus. And then finally, you've got to have a Bretton Woods conference. You've got to have some kind of uh, international commitment to uh, a new world monetary system, and, and that will become more dramatic as we go along. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama's Banking Panic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Getting back to your Dracula uh, analogy, do you know what happened to the second $350 billion in TARP funds released right, let's, by let's Congress? The TARP. We've done the Fed, right? We've said essentially that the Fed has injected $8 trillion. And the trick on that was the criteria were exactly the reverse of what they should have been. But now let's, let's move on now to the TARP. The first $350 billion was given to these banks, right, to Citibank and Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase. And a lot of it was stolen. Nobody knows what was, what was done with a lot of it. Uh, you know, we know that uh, Goldman Sachs probably gave out 5 or $10 billion in bonuses, and, uh, and uh, AIG and, uh, and Merrill Lynch did the same. So uh, there was basically a feast for the Wall Street hyenas. But we know what they didn't do. When Chrysler and General Motors and, uh, and Ford were approaching bankruptcy at the end of 2008, we know that those banks that had just gotten $10, $20, 30000000000 billion each under the old TARP did not come forward to lend to allow uh, industrial production and, uh, and this entire economy in the Midwest region and beyond uh, to survive. And let me stress, those factories in Detroit are a precious asset for humanity in general, and any plan that involves breaking up those assembly lines, that tool and die, machine tool capability, and that skilled manpower, that is nothing short of criminal. If you plan on taking that down and you cite you know, motives of profitability or, or whatever it is. Um, so I, I think you can see that the banks have not done anything very positive. So the first $350 billion, which was enabled by Obama, was then spent by Bush, Paulson, and and their cronies and we you know we're getting the horror stories about you know the the eighty thousand dollar rugs and the twenty thousand dollar commodes and and the rest of it. Now the three hundred and fifty that's left, a lot of that has gone to um, it seems to me a lot of it went to Citibank at the end of December already. But uh, in particular, Obama now says he wants to use between fifty and two hundred and fifty billion dollars of that for foreclosures. You can see again here what's wrong with this approach. The main thing with foreclosures is to stop foreclosures. I would recommend, you want to stop foreclosures? It's easy. You make it a federal crime to kick people out of their houses. And I would even go further. I'd say family farms, businesses, infrastructure, you know, trucking company, taxi company, ferry line, airline, railroad, whatever it is, none of that should be shut down for reasons of financial debt. Everybody should get a pass for the duration of the crisis. Otherwise, we're going to be, we're going to be in a terrible fix. 
The approach of the Obama administration is now just the opposite. Well, yeah. Is he proposing bailing out the mortgage lenders? In effect, that's what he's doing. it's, It's done more cleverly than Bush. Again, Bush was an open, brutal, reactionary thug. Bring it on, wanted dead or alive, and all the rest of the stuff. Obama, of course, now shifty, slimy, uh, very, very hard to pin down, evasive, uh, someone who deals in deception and dissembling. Now, he says he wants to help the uh, people in their homes. And, of course, he says he wants to uh, help families who have played by the rules and acted responsibly. Wait a minute. Families who have acted responsibly. Let's start with the idea that the adjustable rate mortgage itself is a monstrosity that never should have been legal, that hedge funds should have been outlawed, that derivatives have crept into this. All of these securities have been securitized. They've been turned into derivatives. How about that, Mr. Obama? And then what he wants to do, and here again, uh, you just have to read a little bit into the fine print, the plan for foreclosures is to give incentives to mortgage lenders The program is voluntary unless you've taken money from the TARP. In other words, unless you're already on the Washington bailout gravy train, you don't have to do any of this. You can simply say, no, I'm kicking the families out. They're going out on the street, you know, 40 below. I don't care. But if you take money from the TARP, you're then expected to accept incentives. In other words, the government is going to pay you to refinance a mortgage and, uh, As one of the experts here quoted in the Washington Post says, foreclosures are expensive in themselves. Lenders already have a big incentive and a big reason not to foreclose and rather to modify the loan. They don't need the extra gravy from a government handout. Why do we need to throw more money at the lenders? And again, you can see the help is going to count Dracula and not the victim. The only possible approach in human terms or real economic terms or New Deal thinking is you tear Count Dracula off the victim, put a stake through his heart, and then you can deal with the problems of the victim. But you can't, you can't help the victim as long as Count Dracula remains in the, in the picture. If you want to imagine the kind of people that Obama wants to reward with this foreclosure plan, think of Angelo Mozillo of Countrywide, right? this gangster, this thug who uh, presided over the first phase of this uh, you know, breakdown, right? when we had the panic runs on Countrywide Bank in, in California. So uh, it's completely wrong. And, and it's all aimed at maintaining the price of homes, real estate prices. You can forget real estate prices. You can forget real estate prices, stock prices, and so forth. You've got to keep people in their homes. Your main concern is how many foreclosures do we have? How many people are kicked out? You've got to stop that, stop it dead in its tracks with the federal law, and then look at homelessness. We urgently need up-to-date statistics, real honest statistics about the level of homelessness, because I am absolutely convinced that it's skyrocketing, but nobody wants to talk about this, least of all the Obama administration. So I'm afraid that's where the second round of the TARP is going. Now, beyond this, in the second round of the TARP... Well, just a minute. Before you get to that, then you're saying that the... uh the TARP funds so far have basically gone to keeping to trying to keep the bubble pumped up. Yes, exactly. And, and, and that's a very good way to put it. It's a desperate attempt to prevent the collapse of a bubble where it is physically impossible to do this. Again, think of it um, in physical terms. Uh, we have the famous thermite reaction. In other words, once you start uh, thermite cooking, right, once it starts to burn up, 
Uh, there's no force in the universe that can stop it. Once it's started, it, it just has to play itself out. It expends itself, uh, and that's it. The similar thing is going on now. It's a worldwide derivatives panic, and it comes in waves. But this is now uh, the zeitgeist, right? The spirit of the age is shaped by this panic. There's nothing you can do about that in terms of prices. And again, don't worry about the price of homes. Just worry about whether you come out of this crisis with everybody still alive, everybody still in a home, everybody still eating, having things to wear, having means to get to work, and so forth. And the more you focus on the paper prices, uh, the worse off you'll be. I'll give you an example from the New Deal. The New Deal made many mistakes in this regard, too, which is one of the reasons we can, we can uh, say it with great authority today. At the beginning of the New Deal, they said, well, the prices of farm goods are too low. Why don't we pay farmers not to plant? And with a scarcity of farm goods, then the prices will go up. That's absolutely insane. You've got to increase production. The way you get out of a depression is massive increases in the production of necessary commodities so that you keep people alive and you can then restart economic activity. So everything that's been proposed so far puts the cart before the horse. And again, it's purely payments to bankers. Um, the TARP uh, is, is right out of the Herbert Hoover playbook. Obama supported it both times. He supported the first tranche of $350 billion and the second tranche at the beginning of January with the help of, of Barney Frank. Right? And they, they used this demagogical window dressing of putting limits on the ability of bank executives to ride in jets or uh, how much money they're going to get. This is simply uh, eyewash, right? This is very demagogic in many ways, because the real issue is not the millions that these, these characters spend on themselves, right? As, uh, you know, disgusting as it is in many ways. But it's the trillions and the quadrillions that they have been misusing. In other words, this ruling class is guilty of misappropriating the social surplus into derivatives primarily, not so much into their own pockets, although they've done, they've done a lot of that too. So, uh, Geithner comes along now, and he says he wants a bad bank or aggregator bank. Now, everybody can see that Geithner is a fool. Everybody can see that Geithner is a bungling, feckless idiot. He's absolutely unqualified for the post of Secretary of the Treasury. I mean, he's a laughingstock. The only thing I would say about that is don't just focus on Geithner. Remember that Geithner in this was consulting virtually every day with the rest of the team, remember there's the uh, the Goolsby Volcker board in the White House, the recovery board, so to speak. Right, and as soon as you hear the word Paul Volcker, you want to run for the hills because this is the guy who has done more, maybe than anybody, to destroy the U.S. economy. It was Volcker with the 22 percent prime rate back in uh, 1979, 80, 81, and so forth that uh, essentially destroyed a great deal of the heavy industrial base of the United States, and he, he uh, brought credit card interest rates to the level that they're at now. But Geithner does not work alone. He works with Volcker. He works with Larry Summers. He's the, the woman hater who thinks that women are, are genetically inferior and can't understand science, and he was driven out of Harvard with that, and incredibly, now he's back in the, in the uh, White House here. You've also got uh, a guy called Lee Sachs from the... Um, I think the Treasury under Clinton. Gene Sperling was from the Board of Economic Advisors under Clinton. And, of course, you've got Ben Bernanke of the Fed, who's up to his neck in the first tarp. And then this uh, Sheila Baer of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Now, she's violating the law. She knows very well 
that she should seize J.P. Morgan, Citibank, Bank of America, and others. Banks are seized every Friday afternoon. Right? We've had a few seized. Here, let's just uh, look at it. On uh, February 20th, the Silver Falls Bank in Silverton, Oregon, was seized. On February 13th, we had the Pinnacle Bank in Beaverton, Oregon. On February 13th, we had the um, Corn Belt Bank and Trust in Pittsfield, Illinois. We had the uh, Riverside Bank of the Gulf Coast in Florida. We had the Stewart County Bank in uh, Nebraska. Banks get seized all the time, but you see, only the little ones, only the hick banks, only the little yokel institutions, and the big money center banks get off scot-free. But the irony is the J.P. Morgan Chase is more bankrupt than any of those little banks that I just said. So Sheila Bear is... Uh, breaking the law. This is the woman who took Washington Mutual, where a lot of people had uh, deposits, and fed that into J.P. Morgan in order to uh, essentially give J.P. Morgan some loot so that they could survive a few months longer. A lot of stockholders from Washington Mutual, I think, very, very angry about that, I think, with, with good reason. That bank was simply seized, and these other banks ought to be seized, too. So you're getting very, very dangerously close to a kind of a banking system as a government-sponsored compulsory cartel, where the people who are on the inside of the government, who are generally from Goldman Sachs and Citibank, are, are letting this go on. Right? Citibank should have been seized months ago. Citibank has now been bailed out twice, once under the original TARP, once again in November or December with a kind of Swiss-style um, insurance plan under the TARP, and now they're going to get a third round if, if Geithner gets, uh, gets what he wants. So this is really, uh, really outrageous. Well, that, well, now that's right. And then uh, in closing on his economic team, who is this Austin Goolsby? Yeah, Austin Goolsby is a Chicago boy. Austin Goolsby was the main advisor from the, uh, from the campaign last year, and he's famous for doing things like uh, when the original, the stimulus, the Bush stimulus went through in the early 08. We have this program called LIHEAP, Low Income Heating Assistance Program. It means if you're living someplace cold, you get a few bucks to buy whatever you burn, right? Kerosene or oil or uh, you know, whatever your heating bill is. A lot of places, this is life and death, right? So Goolsby said, no, no, that shouldn't be included. Forget LIHEAP. We don't want that. That's not stimulative. Well, it's called it federal emergency relief to keep people alive. The guy is a free trader, free marketeer. He's a Chicago school economist, and he was the principal uh, advisor. He's also the guy that Obama sent during the, uh, during the Pennsylvania and Ohio primaries. There was this big issue about free trade, right, NAFTA. And Obama began attacking free trade, but he uh, slyly sent Goolsby to talk to the Canadian consulate in Chicago, telling them, look, don't worry about this. This is pure demagogy. And sure enough, just in the past few days, we That's right. Obama go and meet uh, the neocon Harper, the Prime Minister of Canada, and they're talking about you know, new and better free trade dimensions under, under NAFTA. So a lot of demagogy, a lot of deception, right? And I think that's the, the key thing with Obama. With Bush, it's clear, a reactionary gangster, and no two ways about it. With Obama, this is now you know, about 2% New Deal window dressing up front, followed by 98% payments to banks. If you look at the the ratios inside these programs, the payments to individuals and the payments to bankers, you can see what the real relation is. Right? If, if it's not you know, 10 to 1 in favor of the bankers, then it's, it's 100 to 1. And similarly, that brings us then to the, uh, to the immediate uh, future ahead. The, the foreclosures has been uh, a disaster, I think. Uh, nothing done so far, and now only, you know, he's talking uh, 
subsidies to these predatory lenders, in effect. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama's Banking Panic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, what is your assessment of the Obama administration's stimulus package? All right, the stimulus package, uh, I don't have any problem with the stimulus package. I think a stimulus package is a fine thing, except it's not a stimulus package. Uh, I would think of this, there, there are some features in there that can be justified as federal emergency relief, and those are, those are important. There's money in there about, uh, let's see, I think it's about $50 billion to uh, increase or to prolong uh, unemployment insurance payments. That's absolutely critical, and you absolutely need that. But it's not a stimulus. It's emergency relief. I don't want to quibble on the words, but uh, you want to keep people alive, obviously. But simply, um, what can we say? The, the, there's a Keynesian way of thinking, which is widespread. Summers says that he's a Keynesian. The Keynesians believe that simply injecting money, simply pump priming or increasing commodity turnover leads to a recovery. It does not. The only way you get a recovery is what I talked about before, the transfusion, the defibrillator, cheap credit for production, and generate borrowing, and then you restart the whole thing, and you've got to do it on both sides. And you're talking about then building real things. Yeah, you've got to build, you've got to qualitatively improve the uh, productivity of labor, and you've also got to show people spectacular examples, things like, you know, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Hoover Dam, the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, right? Those, these are all New Deal things. Uh, the U.S. is built on it, right? The Erie Canal, built by the government of New York State. The Transcontinental Railroad, built by Lincoln. The Panama Canal, built by the U.S. government. Uh, the Moonshot with NASA, right? And the whole computer economy coming out of that. DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Products Agency, gives you the Internet. In other words, you need things that are going to uh, transform the lives of people. It was estimated in the New Deal that every county got something, a school, a library, a water project, a road, uh, a park, something in every county of the United States. That's the kind of thing you have to look at. Now, if we look at the, at the breakdown of the stimulus, it's $40 billion to extend emergency unemployment benefits. That's great. That's exactly what you want to do. $18 billion for child support and family assistance. That's a step back towards welfare as we knew it. Social Security Act 1935, and I'm all for it. Uh, $25 billion for health insurance assistance for the unemployed. That's great. We get into problems with the stimulus when we get into the part that uh, Daschle put in, which is the uh, cost-cutting under Medicare. Daschle, uh, I'm, I think we're, we're all, a lot of people are going to owe their lives to the fact that Daschle was knocked out of the box because he was coming with a, a really brutal, draconian austerity plan for Medicare. And this is still in the works. It's just that he's not going to be able to... Uh, to be the spearhead in the uh, the Congress, what he wants to do is to have a, a central director, uh, a kind of technology czar or medical care uh, methods czar, who will uh, essentially rule on what forms of care can be given and what forms are going to be denied. And the the goal of this is simply the bottom line. It's going to be the cost accountant, uh, you know, approach to medical care, which is generally a disaster. So good riddance to him. But again, uh, when you get into uh, $20 billion for food stamps, this is absolutely essential. It's fine to have $2.5 billion to expand broadband in rural areas. Uh, even the tax credits can be justified, I think, as a form of, of, of um, emergency aid to families who are otherwise going to be sorely beset. So generally, 
the, the idea of having a stimulus is fine, but this was not really a stimulus. I would have called this an emergency aid bill. Now, a couple of other things Obama's got up his, his sleeve. The budget. The budget is coming out this next week. I was just about to ask you about uh, that. Did you have any idea of how that's going to go? Well, I think the general idea of it is it's very wrong-headed. And here we have to watch this guy, Orshag, O-R-S-Z-A-G. This is now the, the bean counter. He's like the David Stockman, the resident... Um, Office of Management and Budget. Yeah. So he's, he's obviously an austerity fanatic. He's, he's a Malthusian uh, bureaucrat. And he says that Obama's going to commit to cut the projected budgets in half by the time he leaves office. Now, normally you'd say, well, this is just demagogy. Uh, this kicks in so late in the game that it doesn't matter. Uh, I think it's actually very ominous because um, balancing a budget in a depression is absolute insanity. In other words, balancing the budget in the depression is pure Herbert Hoover, which supports my contention that Obama really is closer to Herbert Hoover than he is to, uh, to Roosevelt, certainly. So they say that the budget for next year is going to be between one and two trillion, and the goal has to be to cut that in half to about, well, they say 500 uh, billion by the year 2013. And again, I would say, don't look at this uh, in the usual way. It's only money. You can't take it with you. Uh, your main concern is morbidity and mortality among your population, rates of homelessness, rates of infant mortality, rates of employment, all of the real economic criteria, rates of industrial production. I'm afraid right now it's very likely that most of what we think of as dollars are going to be destroyed by a wave of hyperinflation, which now seems like it's going to set in. So I would not worry so much about these dollars uh, and, and even what they're worth. I would simply face the fact that the money economy and the dollars are, in many ways, a political fiction that you can use to assign resources where you think they ought to go, and you can still do that. And that would mean, in particular, uh, don't try to gouge Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Don't even try and I'm afraid that's what Orshag is doing. Orshag is on record as saying quite a few times that he thinks that Social Security is bad but can be fixed, but Medicare is really bad, and it's going to be very painful to fix it. Now, what, I, what you can hear coming is the rationing of care under compulsory government programs, uh, forms of austerity, forms of limiting the use of, of medical technology that's already foreshadowed by what Daschle has put into the, into the stimulus and so forth. You can look at Dashiell's book, by the way. Dashiell is very open. He says that uh, if you're an aged person, you should learn to live with your afflictions. And if you can't do that, dot, 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 well, they expect you to go gentle into the night uh, for the sake of the bottom line of what? Banks, insurance companies, the federal government? That's absolutely unacceptable. So the, the mentality of people like Dashiell and Orsag is to realize these savings at the expense of people. Essentially, Orsag is somebody who wants to balance the budget on the backs of the old and the poor, and I'm not making that up. The Washington Post of this morning uh, essentially has a lot of paraphrasing from an anonymous government official. Imagine this, an anonymous government official of the transparent Obama administration, and that uh, anonymous official says that uh, payments to old people and sick people are going to have to be uh, reduced. And I think that's a monstrosity. See, Bush tried this. 
He tried to loot and uh, pillage and sack Social Security at the beginning of 2005 with his political capital. And Obama, meeting with the uh, Washington Post editorial board on the Thursday before his inauguration, promised what he called an entitlement summit or entitlement reform conference that would be based on sacrifice, and I think that's significant, sacrifice, responsibility, and duty. In other words, austerity, um, that somehow the individual is called upon to sacrifice. And I think a lot of the a lot of the demagogy about the pay rates for these bank executives is to be able to argue that everybody's in the same boat and everybody should sacrifice, even though that's obviously absurd. Well, you know, that, um, that interview that Obama gave to the Washington Post, I uh, just happened to have that with me, and there's a quote in there from Obama. It says, this, by the way, is where there are going to be very difficult choices and issues of sacrifice and responsibility and duty, he said. You have to have a president who is willing to spend some political capital on this, and I intend to spend some. Now, does that sound familiar, spending political capital on looting Social Security? Yes. I mean, that sounds like Bush, doesn't That's it? exactly what Bush said at the beginning of 2005. So, what, what you seem to be seeing is that the finance oligarchy remains, and they send out a right-wing thug as an operative, and he tries and fails, and they get rid of him. And now they've got a, uh, a, a slickster with left cover who has duped a whole lot of people, and he's going to try the same thing. What do you see looking forward with the policies, the present policies, as they stand? Well, the present policies, once again, are Herbert Hoover policies. This is the Reconstruction Finance Corporation from 1932, which has now been uh, brought back to life in the form of the TARP. It seems to me that what you're looking forward to now is um, essentially remembering that we're somewhere between October 1929, the first panic, and what was the low point for the U.S. was uh, January, February, March of 1933 when the entire banking system shut down. I would also urge people to look back at Germany in 1923. That's the biggest example of hyperinflation that we've had in the 20th century. It seems to me that we're approaching some point where there's going to be a crisis of the dollar as a means of international payment. In other words, the hyperinflation of the dollar will be reflected in a collapse of dollar value on world exchanges. In other words, the dollar, ironically, has been stronger compared to the euro in the last six months, although weaker compared to the yen. The euro, the weakest of all, the dollar in the middle, and the yen holding up uh, better, even though that's a problem for the yen. That strangles the Japanese economy because of their export uh, dependency. What I think is he we're headed for right now is dollar hyperinflation combined and indeed caused by a collapse of the dollar internationally. Now, that would mean if you can't use the dollar to pay for things internationally, suppose you've got to come up with gold or some other currency, you would then have to manufacture in this country the things you need to buy the foreign exchange to buy the things you need on the world market. And that, of course, would be a huge shock. But I think it would be important to move in that direction. In other words, to increase the obvious and elementary forms of commodity production that belong to a full-fed economy so that you'd essentially reindustrialize the United States. If Detroit is not going to have sufficient demand in autos, which I think is likely, then reconvert them to all sorts of other things. Reconvert them to space production, to airframes, to tractors, to modular housing, to energy production, uh, and a whole series of other things. And do that 
uh, across the board. Wherever you have empty factories and unemployed workers, you can issue government credit, put them together, and start producing things that people need. And the uh, exchange and the market stuff will take care of itself. The main thing is, again, people and production come first, and not paper and not the price of paper. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Obama's Banking Panic. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Against Oligarchy, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. A paperback second edition of Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, Your Guide Through the Greatest Financial Crisis in Human History, is due out by Progressive Press and available by email to info at progressivepress.com and soon at amazon.com. Webster Tarpley hosts a weekly two-hour Internet public affairs radio program, World Crisis Radio, every Saturday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., Pacific Standard Time at www.gcnlive.com. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot net. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yarrow Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628 or email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. You dig me? You got me?